Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Former Detroiter Kimberly Garrett Brown is the publisher and executive editor of Minerva Rising Press. Her work has appeared in Black Lives Have Always Mattered, a collection of essays, poems, and personal narratives, The Feminist Collective, Compass Literary Magazine, Today's Chicago Woman, Chicago Tribune, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Cora's Kitchen is her first novel, due out in September 2022 from Toronto's Inanna Publications. It was a finalist in the 2018 William Faulkner William Woodstum Creative Writing Competition and the 2016 Louise Merriweather First Book Prize. She earned her MFA at Goddard College and she currently lives in Boca Raton, Florida. Welcome to the podcast, Kimberly. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. So the novel is set in Harlem in 1928. Cora is a wife and mother who works at the library and dreams of becoming a writer. She reaches out to Langston Hughes for advice and they strike up a pen pal relationship. What was your inspiration for this story? Um, I've always been a fan of that time period of the 1920s started off, you know, probably, you know, went to school when you learn about the different uh, time periods, but then specifically the Harlem Renaissance. And I sort of zoomed in on Langston Hughes because, you know, I don't, typically like poetry. I I keep saying that, but that's not true anymore. In the past, I didn't. I'm beginning to really appreciate it now, but I always loved his poetry. And so there was um, a poem that kind of frames the book that really sort of um, gave me an idea as to what women must have gone through if they wanted to write or, you know, had an art or some type in the the 20s, particularly if they were Black, you know, so many of those things were not possible because of, um, you know, uh, racism and discrimination and oppression, um, and not to even mention, you know, sexism too. So I thought, what would happen if there was a woman that wanted to be a writer, but everything was kind of conspiring against her to do it? That's sort of the, the what, <laughs> that's, that's sort of what kind of got me going on that. So you've, you've touched on the reasons why it would be difficult for Cora to, to write during those times. Um, without giving too much of the plot away, what are some of the uh, ways that she gets around that? I think it's very much like women today when we try to write and we have a family and we have a job. She takes snippets of time um, when she's got a free moment, you know, carrying a notebook with her. Um, those types of things are, are how she gets around it. It's just a matter of uh, a little bit here, a little bit there, and, and not, you know, unlike my own journey as a writer, particularly when my children were younger. There is some tension between Cora and her husband, Earl, a musician. Earl insists on his right to play music, but he seems threatened by Cora's need to write, and she keeps her letters to Hughes a secret from him. Do you find creative competition with partners as a common barrier for women writers? I think it is. I actually um, just finished a really fun, um, I guess it's a romance novel by Jasmine Gilroy. I think that's the right, say her last name correctly, but 
Um, and she wrote about it um, in her book, you know, she was writing about a writer and, and his mother. And, and it's, I think it is a thing, particularly if they're both creative, if they both have, have dreams. I think women, because of our nurturing and responsibility, I think we end up taking, putting our family and our responsibilities a lot before ourselves. There are very precise details in the book. For example, a quarter buys Cora three bundles of collards and also a load of laundry in the the uh, ringer washing machine down to, in the basement of her apartment building. Um, and $3 buys a trip to the beauty salon. So what was your approach to doing that historical research to kind of ground all of that? And what methods or techniques did you find the most helpful? Um, well, I would start with Google. <laughs> um, but because I used to be a college professor, um, I would start there to sort of see where I might go to a, a better source in terms of finding newspaper articles, ads, um, things like that to sort of tell, tell you about the price. And it was kind of, it was, it was a little bit difficult to sort of um, imagine that. But then I also, I forgot about this, I had the advantage of growing up with a lot of older relatives um, and my grandmother's aunt used to live with her and she was older and she worked during that time period. And she used to talk to me like we would sit on the sofa and she would tell me stories about working with working for people and how much she made. And so that also helped to ground the details too, just memories from from older relatives. Also, you know, that's that's it's a blessing to have. I mean, I feel like I was really, really fortunate. I knew um, all my great grandparents except for one set and great aunts and great uncles. And so I was able to, because I love to sit and listen to their stories, I was able to collect that. And, you know, those, those memories also helped to form those ideas too. Did they have some stories about maybe Detroit in those days or, you know, that time period at all? Um, most of my family, like a lot of people from Detroit, uh, uh, Black people from Detroit, came from down south. So a lot of the stories were um, specifically from Mississippi, because that's where my family, or Tennessee, uh, which is where my family was from. So many of the stories that they told me um, came from those um, uh, from those places. Although the other thing is, in terms of being a domestic, uh, my paternal grandmother worked as a domestic, so I did take some of the things that she talked about or frustrations that she had um, trying to balance her own family and, and working for this other, you know, this white family and raising their children. Um, I did borrow from that, those conversations. Uh, I think she used to work out and they lived in Detroit on the, what do you call it? On Delray. That's what, it, in Delray. And she used to work in Beverly Hills, I think it was. Um, and so just, or yeah, I think it was Beverly Hills. So just kind of taking that memory, you know, the things that she shared with me too, to work, to work that into my story. And also the fact that she, I, I guess the other thing that, that, that helped me decide I wanted to write this book is that my grandmother wanted to be a teacher and she just never had the opportunity to finish school and to do that. And that sort of made me wonder too, how many other women had dreams and things that they wanted to do and couldn't because of because of the country that we live in. So that that really helped me a lot to kind of orient the the time period and different aspects of that. There's also a challenging running theme of how men treat their wives abusively and they get away with it. There's the story of Cora's cousin Agnes and of Eleanor, a wealthy white woman who befriends and helps Cora, and even Margaret who works at the soda shop. 
how relevant or how resonant do you think that theme is today for to your readers today? I think it's just as relevant today as it is it was um, back, um, I can't even think of how many years ago. I think it's still relevant. I think depending on what your economic status is, there's a lot of times when it goes underground. I, when I was in college, I used to volunteer at a safe house for, for battered women. And I will never forget us providing um, shelter for one of the professor's wives. And, you know, you, you tend to think when you think of domestic violence, you tend to think of uh, lower income, less educated. Um, and that's just not true. And I think that also, you know, informed uh, my desire to write about that because it's, it's, it's something that a lot of time gets, gets sucked underground. Um, and women are, women don't feel safe to share. I mean, even today, my daughter was telling me about a situation. She's um, a third, a fourth year medical student. And she had a woman who her wrist was hurt. And she said her spouse had done it. And my daughter was asking her the questions about her feeling safe. And she actually got chastised by her resident for opening up sort of that can of worms and not having resources. And so, I mean, this is, you know, 2022, it, it's still very, very relevant in a situation where women don't feel safe to share. So I, I feel like that um, definitely still resonates. Unfortunately, I'd love to say that it doesn't, but I, I'm sure that it does. In the end, Cora rejects Langston Hughes' advice to write instead about what it means to be a woman in a world that respects neither your body nor your mind. What gains have we made in the world's view of women since Cora's time? And what do women and women's writers still need? That's, a, <laughs> that's an interesting question in light of, of the last few weeks. I think that women have gained an opportunity, have gained the ability to have conversations like this. Um, that if you even look at this call, you know, there's, there's different women and I'm sure we come from, well, we all are from, you know, have a connection to Detroit, but we come from different places and being able to come together and talk openly. I think that's one thing to be able to bring out a lot of the um, women's issues out to the forefront, I think is an improvement. There are lots of, of vehicles, be it uh, movies or books or magazines that sort of bring women together. I think that that is also an improvement since, um, the 1920s or the earliest part of this of uh, that century but there's also i mean sometimes when i read things i think are we still really dealing with this you know i mean it's um even as a writer you know i remember um a couple years ago this idea that women's stories were small like no one wanted to really hear this editor had said that to me uh, you know that he didn't say it quite that way but basically that was the way that it's you know there, there isn't the adventure, there isn't the, ch you know, the challenge. And, and I just don't believe it's true. And even if you think about like the Vita count and things like that, there's still a, a struggle for women and particularly black women or women of color, um, transgender, um, you know, I can I always get the letters mixed up, so I'm not gonna botch it, but um, just all of that to be able to tell their, um, their stories, there still is a lot of work that needs to be done, I think. Cora also tells Hughes, I understand colored women don't have the same voice as white women. I can't turn my back on any women. I believe all women must stand together if any woman wants to get ahead. And I know that both Minerva Rising Press and Anana 
publications have a focus on women's stories. Why do you think gender alliances were important in Cora's time and how do you view their importance today? How has it changed or how is it the same? I think gender alliance was important back um, in the beginning of that century because then it gave women a safe place to share their experiences. Um, one of the things that we talk that I talk about in the book is a, is a heterodoxy and how you know women came together to have conversations that were different than maybe what their husbands thought or what were socially acceptable um, in their communities. I think being able to be with women and talk to women, it not only gives you an, an ability to express what you're feeling, but it also it also strengthens and encourages women because it's so great when you hear a story and you realize that you are not the only person who feels that way. Um, you don't feel as isolated. You don't feel as alone. Um, and I think that is, that's still important. And things like, you know, unfortunately, things like Ayana and Minerva Rising have existed because we focus on the stories that women have to tell that are important and that get maybe overlooked because, you know, the, the, um, the, the belief that they're smaller stories, they aren't. And that's, the, and that's the only thing I can think of to really describe it. Um, I think that there's so, women have so much that they are managing. Um, they're managing whatever their creative desires are. They're managing relationships. And a lot of times children or not children or the society in, you know, in, in, in as a whole, all of that is sort of in their lives trying to manage that. And I think when you're with other women, it's a safe place to just sort of unload and, 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 and grow who you are inside. I think that is the biggest piece of it. And it was just important. That's what I love about this story between Eleanor and um, Cora, but it also is the reason why I started Minerva Rising. And it's one of the things that I love about the friendships that I have uh, with the women in my life is how much just, um, seeing and having conversations with them fills me up that that encourages me and I feel like you know there are things that maybe you don't want to tell someone that's your experience and then, and then they say something you're going oh okay I'm not the I'm not the only one who feels that and that's so so important um, so that's I, I to answer your question I think it's still as important now and maybe you know in light of everything that's been going on maybe even more important that we continue to bind together um, because you know, we need each other and we understand each other. I think that's, that's why it's so important. Tell us a little bit about Minerva Rising Press and your work for that. And, and how does that, how do you find the creative process of being a publisher connects or doesn't connect um, with your creative process as a writer, as a fiction writer or nonfiction writer? <laughs> when I first started Minerva Rising, I had no idea that there would be a huge disconnect between me as a writer and me as a publisher editor because there just isn't enough time in the day to do both. Uh, so that, that took me a while to be able to get back to my own process. Um, but I also, I love, you know, the idea of, of working with women, helping their stories sort of grow and become better. We actually won a couple of awards this year. Uh, for books that we published, we won one with Forward Review, it's a silver, no, bronze, bronze uh, for multicultural fiction. And then we won a silver award for a kind of self-help creative book for, through Nautilus. So it's nice to be able to help women sort of um, live their dream and to, to see that we have these ideas. And I, you know, in terms of my own creative process, when I'm editing a book or I'm editing a story, 
it really grows me as a writer because I watch what they're doing and you know what works and what doesn't work and how we have these conversations about the about the process and I use all of that in my own writing and I and I love that I wish I had um, more time to do that than the other parts of running a publishing uh, business that requires a lot of uh, <sighs> the worst things of time for me, the administrative stuff. So, Well, would you like to read from Cora's Kitchen for our audience? Sure. I'm just going to start at the beginning. I feel like that's March 29th, 1928. The last thing I wanted to do after working all day was traipse around Harlem looking for that boy. But Mr. Peterson called the house again this evening. Junior didn't show up for work for the second time this week. I contemplated waking Earl to go look for him, but he's honoring if he doesn't get a nap before he goes to the club. I checked the park between our house and the school, but Junior wasn't there. A couple of girls who looked his age told me they talked to him right after school, although they didn't remember which way he went. I searched the alley, basement apartment, stairwares, and every other hidden corner I could think of until I wound up at Shorty's Bar. Young boys like to hang out there because they drink and gamble. I told Junior if I ever caught him there, I'd wear his hideout, but he thinks at 13 he's grown. The place was practically empty, still reeking of musty cigar smoke and alcohol. Three men sitting at a table just inside the door stopped talking when I came in. The floor was so sticky, I feared my shoes would get stuck. I walked over to the bar and asked the bartender if he'd seen Junior. He hadn't. I turned to leave, but noticed the men at the table watching me. One of them, wearing a gray prince striped suit, nodded as he swirled his glass. I stopped at the table to ask if they had seen Junior, even though I knew they wouldn't tell the truth if they had. Of course, they said they hadn't. On my way out, I recognized a boy from our building. He ducked his head when he saw me. Young folks today don't respect their elders as they did when I was coming up. If someone's mother from the neighborhood was looking for them, I would have spoken up mostly out of fear that she would tell my mother I hadn't helped. Nowadays, there's no telling how parents might react if you tell them about their children. It's best to mind your own business unless you know the parents well. I walked up and down a few more blocks and then to Peterson's market to see if Junior had shown up. Lo and behold, there he was sweeping the floor behind the counter. What are you doing here, mama? He asked as if he'd been there all along. I had a half a mind to take off my shoe and beat the living daylights out of him. But Mr. Peterson was standing next to him. Mrs. James, what brings you down here? He asked. I need some collars for dinner, I said. I bought three bundles of collars so I didn't look like a fool, but I tossed them in the first rubbish bin I passed on my way home because they smelled sour, a quarter wasted. Mr. Peterson ought to be ashamed of himself selling near rotten fruits and vegetables for twice as much as they can get them at a market uptown. But he knows no one is going to complain. He's the only market for almost a mile. Most people don't have money or time to search for a better deal. I suppose I shouldn't complain, though. At least Junior has a job. When I got home, Earl was getting dressed for work. He fussed all through dinner after I told him what happened. Junior was lucky his father left for the club before he got home from work. Hopefully Earl will calm down by the time he sees Junior in the morning. The whole incident reminded me of the Langston Hughes poem I came across Shelby this afternoon called Troubled Woman. I cried as I read it. It felt as if Langston was standing in my kitchen watching me hunched over the sink, washing dishes. I'd never thought of myself as troubled before, but I am. My days are becoming more and more wearisome. Sometimes I wonder how I'm going to make it. I copied the poem into a piece of paper to study when I got home. It makes me want to write, but I don't know where or how to start. 
it's too bad I can't write like Langston. I'm sure I would have a lot of stories to tell about being a troubled woman. I wonder how he came up with the idea anyway. If he wasn't away at college, I'd ask him. I miss seeing him at the library forums and at the Book Lovers Club. Thank you very much. Well, yes. thank you for joining us today. We appreciate uh, hearing about Chorus Kitchen and we wish you all the best. And it comes out in September. Yes, September 20th. Terrific. We'll look forward to it. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.